1: Welcome to Newstalks Taking Stock, I'm Mandy Johnston. Now, Coming up on today's programme, the ESRI have warned us that it could be back to the future as 80s levels of inflation loom on the horizon, but what impact would this have on the Irish economy and more importantly on households in the months ahead? crypto crash regulators stop Facebook's plans for a new online currency. We're going to hear the inside story of how the company's cryptocurrency dream died. And finally, barriers to digital engagement are certainly coming down, but skills gaps continue to be an issue. We'll explore what we can do to foster engagement and bridge that digital divide. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. But first up today, we're joined now by Cliff Taylor, who's Managing Editor of the Irish Times. Cliff, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. Now, we've all seen this week the ESRI figures warning us that we could be going back to inflation as high as 8%. I mean, the last time we saw those figures was in the 80s. Cliff, I was just thinking uh, this morning about what life was like in the 80s. I was a teenager then. I think you are a teenager as well, maybe a little bit older. A little
2: bit older. Older, Mandy, thank you.
1: But actually, there's a lot of people who'd be listening who don't know what life was like. And just the lifestyle itself was entirely different. Like, you know, our parents would have went on one holiday every year for two weeks. They would have booked it in JWT. Uh, That would have been that would have been it. You know, the biggest bill was the mortgage uh, and if a car, if you had one. But um, can you just give us a sense what that period of inflation was like for households at that time?
2: Yeah, different times, um Andy, and I guess the uh the backdrop was two big inflationary shocks in the nineteen seventies, from big increases yeah. in oil prices, uh resulting from disturbances in the the Middle East and decisions by OPEC, which really controlled the market back then to a stick production, particularly to the West. Prices shot up. So the second oil shock was in nineteen seventy nine and heading into the eighties, that was the I suppose the dominant factor, I mean, the inflation, which peaked at that stage at kind of 15, 16, 17 percent. Uh, wage deals done with the unions where wages were increasing at very high rates as well. Uh, government borrowing was going off the charts. And there was a real feeling of kind of economic instability that we risked kind of losing control of of the economy, if you like. Uh, and and a, real fear, a real feeling that things weren't, you know, the government didn't have things under control. Uh, through the 80s then, it was a pretty grim decade uh, from an economic point of view. And I was in college uh, college at the time and just coming out of college. And, you know, it was a rarity to, uh, to find a job in, in, in Ireland uh, or to find a good job or, or a steady job coming out of college or school. At that stage, inflation was still very high. The Government was grappling to get control of it. It was the Gael Labour government for most of the middle of the nineteen eighties, and then it got booted out in nineteen eighty seven. And uh, the Fianna Fáil government, led by Charlie High came in. Finally, got a bit of luck uh, from from a pick up in the international economy, and also got a bit of a hold of the of the public finances. I mean, some of the work had been done by the outgoing government, but things started to pick up then heading into the heading into the nineteen nineties, and, the, and the the start of the Celtic Tiger and the big convergence of living standards here with those elsewhere in Europe, but there was a real feeling during the 1980s that we were way behind what was happening elsewhere. We were looking at you know strong growth from what from much of that decade elsewhere in Europe, uh, we were lagging behind, and I kind a real feeling that Ireland had lost its way economically and was searching for a way forward.
1: Yeah, and you use that word control there a lot in terms of managing the economy. Yeah. There's not that same sense of around at the minute what do you think about the government's capacity to control the economy we're only 12 weeks in to this year um, and already it has given an extra I think it's 870 million to cover things like fuels costs Um, do you think this government has the capacity to control the the economy
2: I I think we came through Covid better than might have been expected Uh, certainly better than anyone had expected when the the Covid crisis hit or a few months on when we realised that a large part of the economy were going to be closed for a long period of time. Um, But that was helped by by the actions of the European Central Bank and and keeping interest rates at zero, and government being able to go out and borrow money at zero. And in fairness, making the right decisions in terms of the supports that were needed got the economy through COVID much better than might have been expected. I think think it's got trickier now Mm. um, for a couple of reasons. One is the unpredictability of what's going to happen, and... OK, we face the same in COVID, I suppose. But obviously, this is, a, this is another uh, this is another situation entirely. Major geopolitical crisis. Real uncertainty about energy prices. I think that the economy can manage to get through with high energy prices, albeit with a significant amount of pain and a, a loss to everyone's living standards. But if prices were to shoot higher still or, or worse, if there were to be restrictions in supply due to you know, the crisis going on, uh, Putin deciding to cut off gas supplies, or deciding not to buy it anymore, or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. happens. But it's a really unpredictable situation, and and the backdrop it, it is going to affect the economy. I think more widely than the COVID crisis did, and the big multinational manufacturing employers are certainly going to be hit hit hard by uh, by higher energy prices. And the capacity of the exchequer is still there to respond. So, you know, I think we're still in control of the ball. If you like, the government's still in control of the ball. It has $4 and salted away to deal with COVID emergencies, which is likely uh, to be redirected now to deal with this. So I think it can deal with it, but I think it's trickier. And there's been a real change in mood on financial markets in the last couple of months and even in the last couple of weeks in terms of government borrowing costs. From thinking that the crisis was going to put off central bank interest rate increases markets are now convinced that the opposite is the case that because the hit to inflation is going to be so Mm. severe that central banks are going to have to respond even if it's going to hit growth that is going to make it more expensive for the government to borrow money that is going to lead to a focus by international investors again on how each individual economy is is performing and can manage so i think we're entering into a trickier time
1: just to pick you up on that um issue of unpredictability um, you'd have to feel for the central banks who can manage risk and create policy around risk, but the unpredictability that's around makes things trickier for them. Um. Yeah. So, what do you think the European Central Bank will do about interest rates?
2: I think, um, I think they're going to increase them. The only question is when. Mm. Um. There was an argument before the actual invasion happened. And energy prices were increasing at that stage already, as you remember, whether that justified an interest rate increase or it would be better to hold off because the factors that were driving inflation were not kind of bubbling demand in economies so much as as higher energy costs. But I think the extent of the inflationary increase means that we are going to be looking at interest rate increases. And the only question is when. So. The playbook from the ECB, if you like, is they're going to start rolling back their purchases of government bonds. this special assistance that they gave to mm. countries during the COVID crisis—that's going to happen, you know, over the over the rest of the spring, heading into the summer, and 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 the second half of the year. Then it's you know theoretically game on for higher interest rates. Now, how and when that might happen is very hard to predict at this stage. Uh, but we could see certainly some move on what's called the deposit rate, which is the rate uh, the central bank gives to banks for, for, for when to keep their money overnight uh, and, and then increases uh, perhaps late this year or next year in its main interest rate. So That is going to lead to uh, a gradual increase in borrowing costs uh, for the state, for businesses and, and, and for mortgage holders. The question, I suppose, is how quick it, quick it happens and how far it goes. Up to now, most people have thought that you know we're in a period when, when interest rates are going to remain relatively low compared to what we'd experienced certainly back in the 80s. And and I think they, they, they probably will. But there is a risk now that inflation is going to get stuck at a higher level and central banks are going to be chasing it. And Part of the price of that is going to be paid in, in lower rates of economic growth.
1: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, and we're talking to Cliff Taylor of the Irish Times. Um, And just in terms of our own economic growth and the targets that had been set out for the government, are all those financial targets dead now?
2: I don't think so. Um, You know, it's interesting that there was so much, one of the lessons I suppose in the last couple of years is is to build in a lot of contingency and uh, leeway and budget sums. Unfortunately, that was done this year. Now, it was done because of COVID and because of fears that, you know, back last October that, we might be looking at more restrictions, more closures, extending the PUP or wage subsidies this year. Now mm. that doesn't look likely to happen. Uh, we keep our fingers crossed on that one, despite the uh, the increasing the increasing caseload. But we do have a significant amount of money there uh, in, in in the bank, if you like, um, four billion in contingency funding, and I think some leeway in the budget as well. There's been a very strong increase. in in taxes in the early months of the year. And I think the the next exchequer figures are going to confirm that. And, of course, while um, lower growth will hit tax, higher inflation also gives the government a bit of a boost in terms of VAT. So I think they'll be okay for now. Um, And and I think they will aim to keep spending within target this year and and possibly borrowing might be a bit higher than it would otherwise have been but there is a big uncertainty now over, over the outlook uh, and big question marks uh, i think obviously about, about how this war goes and what it means for energy supplies and energy policy heading into the next couple of years so i do think that looking out over the next 2 or 3 years they're going to be re- redrawing parts of the budget sums for sure
1: Just look at the domestic political situation for a second as um, households have to deal with more price increases on the energy side, the inflation it's undoubtedly going, the government is going to come under more and more pressure from the opposition and from households we see the new party leader of Labour already calling for a mini budget Sinn Féin calling for VAT reductions it's going to be a long nine months to keep demand at bay.
2: Yeah it is and I don't think they're going to succeed to be honest with you I, I think they had the first the first household package there early in the year before the invasion itself happened with the 200 euro grant and some welfare measures, and then subsequently the excise cuts. And the story was that you know maybe we're we'll trying to hold on to the budget now, but I really don't think that's you know unless things ease very quickly. I, I don't think that's uh, that's going to happen. Already we're told that at a European level, the government is looking for more flexibility in terms of adjusting VAT rates. And that's one way of uh, of holding down fuel prices to some extent, mm. and I think I, I find it hard to see that they'll get as far as the budget without doing something to uh, to help households that are that are in the firing line, whatever way they do that. And the, and the third thing then is 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 businesses. Like I think some level of business support may be needed as well. And you know potentially this could all be uh, this could all be really expensive, and the four billion in uh, in budget anyway, could, could could be used up pretty quickly.
1: Yeah, we um, I, we haven't even begin begun to talk about wages or social welfare. Absolutely. Yeah, so yeah. That's, all, that's all going to come into play as well. Cliff, I just want to get your views on, on the energy side of things, if if I may. You mentioned at the outside when we were talking about the 80s about the energy crisis. I mean, there really is no way to manage it from a domestic situation in the short term it's it's now about geopolitics and what's going to happen at EU level what's your thinking around what the EU might do on sanctions or supply vis-a-vis Russia
2: yeah I think it's very difficult for them you know I've thought for a few weeks now that it's probably not credible for them to continue to buy Russian oil and gas as the war gets gets worse and Mm. worse and it'll be interesting to see what vibes uh, emerge from uh, from, from, from the latest uh, European discussions on that And what effect would,
1: if there were sanctions, um, what effect would that have for us here in Ireland?
2: Yeah, if they stop buying, I mean, oil is the first, would likely to be the first thing in the firing line uh, because that's a little less damaging uh, from the point of view of the European economy. You know, it's a little easier to get hold of oil from somewhere else. But that would mean higher oil prices, first of all. It It would keep prices high. Moving right through this year and into next winter, I would have thought... And possibly also lead to some, you know, supply problems, uh, particularly in areas like diesel, where, where Russia is a, is a really big supplier. And you know, we have some some leeway in terms of stocks, but I, I think that would only take us so far. So, you know, not buying Russian oil is, is certainly going to cost the European economies as well as the as the Russian economy. Gas is a really big one, not because we buy Russian gas. Uh, ourselves we don't but if if Europe cuts off from buying Russian gas supplies or Putin turns off the tap there's no doubt that that would have an, be a major shock to the gas market and could lead to the threat of things like rationing heading into uh, heading into next winter uh, that's problematic from a lot of points of view uh, obviously consumers might be protected but industry might have to take a hit so you know that is that is very difficult and it is the kind of thing that would turn likely hit to growth which we're looking at you know i think i think now we're looking at the economy continuing to grow just not as fast as it would have yeah but if you get into that kind of situation you know you're you're, you're talking about you know, maybe growth being wiped out and and it brings us back to that of recession and such mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah,
1: brings us back to the unpredictability uh, scenario Absolutely. again. Well, Cliff, I'm sure that these are issues that we'll be uh, coming back to in the weeks of head but, ahead. But for now, we we'll, we we'll leave it there. Uh, that's managing editor of the Irish Times, Cliff Taylor. Cliff, thank you very much for joining us today.
2: Thanks, my dear pleasure.
1: Welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, back in 2019, Facebook revealed plans for a new global digital currency called Libra. It claimed that 1.7 billion people around the world without bank accounts could be able to use it to make instant international money transfers from the comfort of their mobile phones. But it didn't go according to plan. And here to explain what went wrong, we're joined now by Kieran Stacey from the Financial Times. Kieran, you you're very welcome and thanks for joining us today on News Talk.
3: Thanks for having me, Mandy.
1: Now, the Financial Times, you and and your colleagues have conducted an extensive set of interviews into this issue, including talking to executives, developers, lobbyists, and regulators, and some of the politicians who ultimately killed it. But can you start Hmm. off by telling us what exactly Libra, the Libra project was?
3: Well, it went through various iterations. Um, In its purest form, it was a cryptocurrency, a digital currency that Facebook wanted to launch. And uh, originally, Facebook wanted to both help issue the currency, so the coins, the digital coins that would be transacted around the system, and own a, a digital wallet. So essentially, you would have your Facebook wallet, and then you would spend your Libra coins with you know, various retailers, online marketplaces, whatever. And what it was really trying to do was make itself the center for the global payment system so first of all you would go to facebook marketplace first before even amazon for example if you wanted to buy something second of all they would then be not only amazon but they would be visa essentially they would be the card in your wallet and then they would be able to track all the payments that you made um that could be lucrative Uh, to the company in terms of just taking a commission on payments. But really what they wanted was the data. They wanted to know what people spent their money on. And if they could link that into the data they already have about you, well, they kind of then know everything about all 2 billion users that they have, it would be a fantastically powerful data resource for them.
1: Yeah, and that issue of data we're going to come back to in a moment because it's one of the things that the regulators were very concerned about. But just on the issue of cryptocurrency, how did it propose to differ from others like Bitcoin, et cetera?
3: Well, the main way in which it's not Bitcoin or it wasn't supposed to be Bitcoin was that it would be a stable coin. Uh, a stable coin is one that is backed by a real currency. So essentially what you tell your users is um, for every digital dollar you spend, we have a dollar or we have a, a certain amount of money in our reserves, so that if the value falls below mm-hmm. a certain threshold, we can recompense you but to it, this extent. So it, it kind of provides an insurance for, for users.
1: Originally, Karen, it wasn't going to be tied to just one currency, though, was it?
3: That's right. It was supposed to be a basket of different currencies. So at first, the creators were kind of worried about it looking too US centric. They thought that Europeans in particular wouldn't like that. So they thought, well, we'll do, we'll do the dollar and we'll have some euros in there. Maybe we'll have some uh, Japanese yen in there, um, probably some British pounds. um, And, you know, we'll, we'll use this basket of currencies. But that was one of the things that became incredibly unpopular, because I think they realized fairly early on that the people who were going to let this live or die were politicians in the US and to make it happen they needed to be much more US centric than I think that they had uh, first envisaged. So they did then switch to saying okay well it will be dollars only and that was one of a number of changes they made during this whole process.
1: As you said it it went through a number of iterations and changing to one single currency and changing its name um, as well didn't it at, at some place along the line?
3: That's right. Libra became DM. Um,
1: is it, is it and, as in carpe DM
3: uh, or was it something to do with? As in carpe DM. We did notice while we were reporting this story, and I still don't know whether this uh, is um, a coincidence or not, but the man who came up with the idea is called David Marcus. So his initials are DM. And we we never figured out whether this was a coincidence that it changed its name to DM, but I, it, it is I al- it is the Latin for day. So I,
1: I also wondered was it an anagram of dime somewhere along the line, but that's just my suspicious mind. Um, Could be. But actually, Could be. as you read your report about this, it's not just a story of this one cryptocurrency, whether it's Libra or, or Diem it is actually a story of how the whole tech sector is being viewed differently by regulators. Mm. Did, you, did you did you find that through your investigations, a real sense that they're looking at uh, all tech uh, companies in a different way than we would have seen in the last 10 years, say?
3: Oh, absolutely. And it's something I've been tracking here. So. I cover um, tech and regulation issues from Washington DC for the FT, and so this, that's something that I've been tracking for a while. And you know, we've had the idea of the tech clash that has been around um, for a few years now, um, and it is certainly striking quite how much, uh, you know suspicion of large technology companies now unites left and right. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost nothing else does in the US, but Democrats and Republicans can really get behind this idea that Silicon Valley's biggest companies are simply too powerful. Um, and the companies themselves just do not really understand how to navigate that. It's changed very quickly. You know, They were corporate champions just a few years ago during the obama administration you know these companies were fated as real american champions and and now their their reputations are dirt a lot of them um, and so they they're finding that very very difficult to adjust to and the interesting thing for me about this project was and we point this out in the piece, this was a real reversal of Facebook's entire corporate policy. So Facebook's mantra was move fast and break things. The idea is you set things up quickly, you push boundaries. Okay, you might break a few rules as you're doing it, but eventually the world adjusts to suit you rather than the other way around.
1: And Kieran, Kieran, sorry for interrupting you. I just want to ask you one question there. Mm. Why do you think on this occasion, they chose to seek um, clearance before they advanced? Why do you think this particular um, project was different for them?
3: I think that with this one it was t- pers- partially it was timing yeah. um so this was 2019 we'd had uh, you know the US election in 2016 and, and after that they'd had three years essentially of bad press and bad reputation um in Washington so I think that they knew that um the politics were against them and that they had been accused of uh, essentially breaking rules and not caring about the social impact that company had. They also knew that there is something very fundamental and almost visceral in American politics about money and about the primacy of the dollar in particular. So if you are going to launch a currency, if you're going to try and get involved in financial services, that is hugely, hugely politically sensitive. Um, And what they were doing as well was going to challenge the traditional banking model. So they had some pretty powerful opponents here in in Washington and New York. So they knew that this would be a tricky thing to pull off. Um, And so they did, they reversed this traditional position of move fast and break things. And they decided to ask permission first, but it turned out not to work either <laughs> actually there's an argument that asking permission first was a massive mistake
1: massive mistake for them um and where they chose to launch the for the second time was a very interesting uh, location as well wasn't it
3: yeah well it, it was the first time where they launched in the old San Francisco mint um which was where they used to literally mint the currency and you know this sounds very cool yeah this building that used to be used to mint physical currency now they're launching their flashy new digital currency but in a way it just cemented yeah. the concerns that people in washington had that this looks like a traditional uh, uh, sorry a threat to the traditional banking model and a threat to the dollar and that that is very worrying um, for a lot of people in Washington. So they were unlikely to be very uh, happy when they saw that happening.
1: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Kieran Stacey, who's Washington correspondent for The Financial Times. Can we go back a little bit, Kieran, to talk about the structure of Libra and how it was presented, because it wasn't just a company uh, spearheaded by Facebook. They, it was an association, a grouping of of quite significant players.
3: Yeah, there there were um, a lot of backers to this project. Visa, MasterCard, um, a lot of payments companies, Uber was involved. Um, So a lot of those tech companies that people will have heard of uh, put money into this project. The problem was, and and they never really got over this, Facebook launched it. Mm. And it was Facebook executives who were backing it and it was Facebook money that set up the infrastructure behind it so Facebook then desperately tried to say hey no 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 we're an association it's not us we're just one member in this whole association of uh, other companies but it was so clear from the beginning that this was a Facebook project and the other members very quickly got uh, cold feet and backed out including PayPal which was one of the members um, which was where David Marcus who Uh, set the whole project up used to work. So even, you know, David Marcus's old bosses quickly decided that this was going to become too contentious for them.
1: So Facebook or Meta, whatever we're calling them now, they became a a lightning rod themselves um, and probably caused most of the problems. But where were the concerns or what were the concerns from the regulators on the project itself?
3: Well, there were multiple concerns. Um, They were worried that the currency would be used for money laundering so criminals would be able to, to to launder their proceeds of crime using this uh, they were worried about fraud um they were worried uh, they were very worried about what would happen if there was a sudden loss of confidence uh, in the digital currency and everybody tried to reclaim their money could there be a run mm. on this digital currency and would facebook or whoever was running it would they have the money to be able to repay um, all their customers Now, to be fair, the regulators that I spoke to said that most or if not all of these concerns were met in various different ways. One of the things that um, the Libra Association, Facebook, one of the things they did very successfully was um, they recruited a guy called Stuart Levy, who used to be the uh, Treasury, US Treasury official in charge of counterterrorism financing. And when he came in, I think he did um, manage to placate a lot of concerns that were being raised in Washington. And they they put in lots of checks and balances. One big change they made, for example, is originally they said, anybody can host a wallet. You don't have to prove who you are. You can just have a wallet and you can use our coins. It's fine. And the idea behind that was you'd have massive take up and, you know, a lot of financial inclusion. Uh, they changed that policy. They said, okay, no, 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 that's too dangerous. What we'll say is if you want to launch a mm. Wallet on our system, you will have to prove who you are, which really limited the scope of this project. Um, But pleased. US regulators. But I think in the end, it was it was the politics as much as anything else. Um, they couldn't get away from being Facebook. And there were these data privacy concerns which Facebook could never really answer because they wanted the data. So you know, it was part of the point of the project was to have that data. And if the regulators don't want them to have that data, then that was a, a conflict that would never be resolved.
1: Yeah, look, the repeated scandals through Cambridge Analytica, all those revelations, the hearing they they had to go through in the Congress, their reputation has changed fundamentally from where they started. Do you think, though, that this was actually a good idea? Because there is, a at the end of the day, a lot of people who have mobile phone access who don't have a bank account um, and that the legacy issues that may have been faced by Facebook uh, went against it but somebody else might take this up uh, and actually try to do something similar
3: well the project the infrastructure surrounding the project the things that they have have been sold um so there is a a small bank now called silvergate which owns these assets and is going to try and do something with them um there are other stable coins around which are now massive um there's one called tether there's one called usd coin um you know these uh, this technology exists it's out there it's fairly widely used what nobody's done really is marry the coin technology with an existing social media platform which is what facebook wanted to do um it is of course a good thing to have technology that makes it easier to move money around particularly cross-border transactions um and it it's kind of crazy how expensive it still is to move money from one country to another but there are you know technologies dealing with that and and i suspect that whether it's through the use of digital currencies or other technology it's going to become much cheaper quite quickly to to move money around
1: one of the reasons i think that the regulators gave for rejecting them was that there wasn't stablecoin policy is there stablecoin policy in the us now
3: no okay no um, there isn't uh, there is a, a bill which is being drawn up for congress to uh, debate uh, there is the treasury is very concerned about that this here and as is the federal reserve um, as i mentioned there are two stable coins in particular that have grown massive and what they're very very worried about with those is they've essentially grown without any regulation um, and they're very worried that if the value of those coins starts to fall quickly, you could end up with a lot of US customers out-of-pocket who didn't really realize that they were at risk of losing all their money. So they're desperately trying to kind of reverse engineer some regulations to bring these companies within the financial services system, but it's gonna be very, very difficult. Um, There are arguments in Congress now about exactly how they do it. Um, It may be that regulators simply have to suddenly overnight declare that these companies are banks and have to be regulated as such um, or they they, they could um, designate them as being systemically important uh, which is the term they use so i think you know there is a lot of movement on this there's a lot of urgency but it hasn't happened yet
1: do you think that us politicians are paying a lot more attention to this area of digital currency
3: Very much so. In fact, I'm writing a piece right now, which will be in the FT over the next couple of weeks on exactly what you say. There are a group of members of Congress who suddenly woken up to the idea that this isn't a fringe technology. Mm. This is not something they can ignore and will go away in a few years. This is something they actually have to decide. It's gonna be around, it's gonna be massive. And they have to decide how they want it to operate. Um, And there are some people who are very enthusiastic about blockchain technologies and cryptocurrency. And there are some people who are very worried. So you've got people like Elizabeth Warren, for example, um, in the Senate, um, who has been very, very concerned about cryptocurrency being used for fraud and more recently being used to evade sanctions on Russia. Um, And it is becoming a more and more central debate. Um, There will be a lot of legislation to, to, to come in the next few years. Um, and if it doesn't get passed, I think the regulators will have to step in and just take action themselves. You're already seeing that to a certain extent, the Securities and Exchange Commission here has said to the platforms where you can trade these currencies, they've said, you must be regulated. Mm-hmm. You can't, just because you're trading an unregulated asset doesn't mean that you yourself as an exchange can't be, you know, uh, get to evade these um, rules that we already have for exchanges. Um, and so he, he, this guy, Gary Gensler, who's at the, the head of the SEC, has said to these exchanges, come and be regulated or we're going to go after you. And they have, they've started going after some, and some of these companies are absolutely massive, you know, Coinbase, for example, very, very big company. So um, they are, uh, I, I think this is An area where people are suddenly realising this is no longer a small technology used by a few people. This is a very central thing that um, politicians need to wake up to.
1: And what's incredible, Kieran, just to go back to a a point you made at the very outset, is these companies, uh, these tech companies are, you know, they're very profitable. They're full of really bright, smart, intelligent people. And they have a real difficulty navigating regulatory systems, don't they? And dealing with the political world
3: it's a culture clash and mm. that's the piece that we wrote was was really about that it's a culture clash between two utterly different places silicon valley where fast movement and um innovation is valued above everything and washington where you know existing relationships matter more than anything else and mm. money talks and um Powerful industries can block a lot of things happening. Um, frankly, everything happens in Silicon Valley and nothing happens in Washington. <laughs> America is a balance of those two things. And I think the problem is for Silicon Valley people coming over here is they just don't quite understand that they're not the heroes mm. that they are maybe in the tech world. And they, they can't really adjust to that. And once they do understand, they just don't know how to um, make things better for themselves. Yeah,
1: frankly. and I think that um, in their early days there was certainly this perception that they were a slightly left-leaning um, industry yeah. coming out of Silicon Valley and now it's yeah. it's turning into a highly regulated right-leaning industry and regulation getting more challenging for them. Just here in Europe, we're, we're expecting in the next uh, couple of days a new uh, regulation in the Digital Market uh, Markets Act and I know that... Mm tech companies have been lobbying really hard to try and change them. It's, it's a fait accompli, mm. really. Is there anything overarching in the U.S. like that, beyond the cryptocurrencies? Is there anything in the pipeline to, to kind of regulate the, the tech sector there?
3: Uh, it's a really good question. There is nothing really equivalent to the Digital Markets Act. I think that is much more sweeping than any of the legislation being um, pondered here in the U.S. A few years ago, there was a lot of talk about having a federal privacy act federal digital privacy act which would um be a little bit akin to you know what what you do have over there in europe with privacy standards um but that it just Went the way of almost everything else in Washington, which is that the Republicans and Democrats couldn't agree on exactly what it would look like, even if they could agree on the theory of there there being something like that. What I think you might get instead of sweeping new rules that apply to the whole industry is um, regulatory action, and particularly on competition grounds. Now I know the EU has been very. Um, forthright on some of this stuff but the US is catching up and you've got two regulators here the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice who look into competition issues they've already launched investigations into Google and Facebook and um, in the Facebook one they talked openly about breaking up the company and undoing the mergers with WhatsApp and Instagram Um, that case is kind of gathering pace now if one of those is successful it'll be the equivalent of the microsoft case Mm -hmm. that we had you know back in 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 the early 2000s um it will be a really seminal moment and even if it's not you know a new act a new piece of legislation that could change the way the industry works for for a long time
1: well karen uh, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today and sharing those fascinating insights uh, from your research we we look forward to your next piece but for now i'm afraid we'll have to leave it there that's karen stacey washington correspondent for the financial times Kieran, thanks for joining us today.
3: Thank you very much.
1: You welcome back to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. Now, barriers to digital engagement are certainly coming down, but there are persistent skills gaps and they risk uh, evolving Ireland's digital economy. And that's according to a new report from Accenture. So to discuss some of its findings, I'm joined now by Jen Spears, who's Digital Divide Sponsor for Accenture in Ireland and Executive Creative Director with Accenture Interactive. Jen, thanks very much for joining us today and you're welcome to the show. Thanks, Mandy. So I just want to start uh, Jen by telling us maybe about the digital divide report and and what it's designed to do.
0: For sure. So the digital design report is actually a follow-up to our initial report uh, bridging the gap which was released in 2020 and that report was released actually just before lockdown so all the data collected was was collected pre-pandemic so what this is is a is a follow-up to a, to that because you know, this is an area Accenture has been looking into for many years. Just what is the where is Ireland at in terms of the digital skills as we move towards an increasingly digital economy? And I think for this report, what we what we have found we are in this unique position where we have almost got a bit of a before and an after, although we're not quite after pandemic yet. A look at how. How the skills have changed, how our digital um, capabilities have changed in the last two years and and what's what's what are the massive changes, but also what hasn't changed, I think that's a really important thing for us to be able to look at as well. so that's again why why Accenture is doing this and it's it's also to be able to help help businesses understand where we're at in terms of our skill sets as a workforce and a future workforce, and where we need to sort of step in and and upskill and reskill in order to be able to to really sort of take take the lead, I guess, as a, as a leading digital economy.
1: You know, it's a very prescient snapshot in time to have a, a comparison between just before and now, still in the throes but trying to get out of of a pandemic. But what did your research show? What did you find?
0: So there were some um, improvements. So if we look at um, some of those improvements, I guess it's mostly in the area of of the everyday digital skills. So as I said before, we did this the report in 2020 and 42% of people at that stage considered themselves to have below average skills. But now in this research, that number is actually reduced to 32%. And of course, you know, that obviously makes sense when the physical world became pretty much like a no-go zone lots of our every, everyday activities, they switched online. So we're all over our mobile phones for our shopping, for our banking, you know, for connection, keeping in touch with family and friends. And I think so that, that, that number dropping, you know, we can make sense of that. And I think especially things around like mobile phones, like 95% of people we surveyed, you know we're obviously making use of the phone and have apps and there to do all the shopping banking and whatnot and you know statistics like people who'd never shopped online went from 28 to 20 percent you know people who'd never used social media dropped from 24 to 17 from 24 and then people who'd never used online banking went from 23 to 14 percent. so a lot of all of this every day activity, you know, we, we all became a little bit more comfortable because we were forced into it so suddenly and so quickly. But I guess the flip side of that is what hasn't changed is, you know, issues around the more advanced digital skills, they sort of stayed the same. And I guess that's where it is really, It's we've, we've got to look into the nuances of that, and particularly as businesses, that's bad news for, I guess, a government economy and businesses that want to make Ireland a leading leading digital economy because we know, you know, there's obviously well documented skills shortages in, in information work and roles and, and increased automation which will that's going to create demand for more digitally skilled people. So unless these sort of advanced skills increase That's going to be at odds with where we need to get to
1: so let's just examine for a moment the people who are not benefiting from the advance of the digital society um what did you find there who are the people who are not progressing
0: yeah so there's definitely still the the divide between you know it's very much prevalent as it was before across age barriers across socioeconomic and working status lines so it's 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 those sort of i guess cohorts of people that were pre-pandemic uh disadvantaged and more marginalized and they have uh, have remained the same so i guess it says those long-standing issues around the haves and have nots have actually they've remained but they've probably become a little bit more nuanced um over the last two years so that's that's definitely something that we sort of you know we need to look at and i think you know things like protection and safety online you know let's look at like what what what's emerged in the last couple of years as as we've gone into you know like online overdrive I guess you know how much more exposed are we to exposed are we to safety things on, on online as we you know as we all sort of become a little bit more digital um, in our everyday and then and things like access I guess so. Access to to desktop and hardware and things it, for, in order to be able to improve and and get those advanced digital skills, you know, like th- those sort of things are still really holding uh, like certain cohorts of the population back.
1: You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Jen Spears, who's Digital Divide sponsor for Accenture in Ireland about Ireland's growing digital divide. So, what do you do with this information? Um, I read in your release you say that we need to take action to address. Uh, uh, what is essentially a, a socioeconomic divide. Um, when you say we, who do you mean? Do you mean government, business, family members? Who leads this change to bring the people who are outside in?
0: Yeah, so definitely the we for, for us, it, it's it's not just one sector. It actually, like, this real change will only come, I think, from a combined effort from government and business and education. Like, you know, certainly in business, what what are we doing, you know, with our current workforce to ensure that, that, that everyone's got equal access to some upskilling some reskilling as as we move into a more you know digital economy and then you know but also for the future workforce what what a, what a business is doing where are we going to look for the the future workforce a, and help i guess improve the the transition from you know s- colleges and schools and whatnot into a workforce. But then if we, if we come up a bit and we look at it at a society level, what can the government do in terms of you know, providing some education, providing access to um, you know, groups where people can get together to learn, and and then you know and then obviously so that will come into the education sphere as well where where are we starting this you know this this is an issue that's not going to go away so it needs to start as early as we can within the education system itself and yeah. i think that's the, that's the conversation that needs to happen between you know again it it isn't just one it's it's not up to one sector it's it's definitely going to come from a combined effort
1: so you mentioned earlier um, digital fatigue. Uh, I was just talking to my husband this morning about that issue and said, if I actually wanted to leave my mobile phone down for a day, I actually I can't do that anymore. And it's not because I, I don't want to. It's that so much of my life is tied up in it. Um, so can you talk to me a bit about what you found in that area and how that compared from before the pandemic in 2020?
0: Yeah. So look, I mean, digital fatigue has absolutely become a real issue for some people, and it's it really just isn't surprising. Like as you said, like given how many of our daily activities, again, like shopping, banking, like connecting with family, they've they've all they all sort of shifted online, and then working as well. So all of that stuff, like when we lost access to the physical world during COVID, you, you know, suddenly we you know you're right, like phone at ear at all times, you know, laptop laptop on for work, laptop shut, phone and here. So that was the sort of the day. I think we saw in the survey that 45% of respondents, they're actively trying to reduce the amount of technology they use each day. And again, that makes total sense. And, and even with 20% of people trying to get away from technology as soon as they finish work. So. If you're a business and if you're an employer, how are you working within within that realm? You know that that's where the the emotional need is is for the people who are working with you. So how do you, you mind people's well-being in those sort of after-hours times or even during the day? If it, if you are still doing all of your work and all of your interaction is online, how can we sort of build in, I guess, a little bit of um, flexibility around you know? Uh, giving people some sort of some downtime i guess when it comes to technology
1: jen will you tell me what you found out about the younger generation um in relation to uh, fake news and their capacity to define what's truth and what's misinformation
0: yeah i mean look it's it's no secret when you look at like say the millennials and the gen said you know they are driving the transition to this digital society so they you know i don't know i have have nieces and everything like they they're they're showing me everything all the time how to do things so it's you know their their comfort level with being online is is really clear but i guess it's that that confidence that they have there's still a little bit of a a, a lack of competence and that's what we need to sort of really be careful of because you know obviously nearly two thirds in that sort of 18 to 34 year age group say oh they could definitely spot fake news online but you know we know like the widespread research shows that that's actually confidence is probably a little bit misplaced. And I think that the, the the tech savvy younger people, they are actually more susceptible to missing information than older age groups who probably have just, you know, th- through age and experience have learned to develop a little bit more cynicism with, with everything that they're sort of reading online. So that was a surprising thing, I think, just, you know, making sure that when we go into sort of bridging the gap for that younger group, we've got to bridge the gap between their perception and the reality of where they are with their with their online skills and ability as we go into sort of an increasingly online world.
1: So maybe not just education for the elder population, but the younger one as well. Uh, Jen, listen, thanks so much for taking the time to share uh, that research with us. That was Jen Spears, Digital Divide, sponsor for Accenture in Ireland and Executive Creative Director with Accenture Interactive. Jen, thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks, Mandy. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock Now while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings. We're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. Many thanks to today's guests and to the producer Simon Keane with Jojo Cardoso on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with On The Record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day.